Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode number 49 of Forever Strength. I'm Andrew Coates. I've got Bailey Lau with me. And I've got a friend that I've been excited to get face-to-face, at least on video, my friend Aaron Phelan, who's quite an icon in the Canadian fitness industry space. And, you know, not everybody's influence is is measured in, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. But Aaron's, well, first of all, you have a master's in journalism. And you've been working in the fitness industry over 20 years. You're the director of communications, direct communications director of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada. You know, you are very intertwined with CanFit Pro, um, an organization that I'll be speaking for in Toronto in August, which I'm excited about. And overall, I just think you've got your fingers in a lot of really positive things that what's happening in the Canadian fitness industry. So it's great to have you on. And uh, you've also been recognized, uh, you know, with awards as a, especially a group exercise instructor on a Canadian scale too. So there's a lot of accolades there. So it's great to have you. Oh my gosh. Thanks. I sound, I sound so impressive. I'm like, Hey, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm honestly, honestly, Andrew, I, I know I'm going to sound like someone who is like, I, I have been watching your career just go from this to this to this and the reason i wanted to be on this podcast is that more than anything i think our messages are entirely aligned right i think and i think that's the most exciting thing right is that we we're not in competition with each other anymore in this fitness industry we're all working towards the same thing which is is making you know canadians and people all around the world healthier through exercise and through physical activity I love abundance mindset. I mean, a big part of this podcast was an idea that I pretty much forced poor Bailey to do as an extension of our women's online group strength program, to which she was apprehensive about. But uh, if you will start at the early episodes to where we are now, you can see just the comfort and proficiency that's grown. And I really do like taking a backseat here. So Bailey, you've prepared some questions. So I want to hear what you have have cooked up. Yeah, of course. Uh, per usual um so you <laughs> have a master's in journalism I just was cur- curious to know how that relates to personal training and if you think that there's anything that goes hand in hand and that helped you or vice versa because I know you started personal training first yeah I I I think that the two definitely go hand in hand because I think in our industry in the fitness industry if you're not always learning you're you're not um really a reliable source for your clients. And that's a, a, an expression we used in journalism a lot, right? Is you have to be on top of your game. You have to be constantly uh, looking at the latest research, the latest studies, the latest evidence. And that very much pertains to how we deal with our clients. Um, and truthfully with my own clients as a trainer and as the group fitness instructor, now as a virtual fitness instructor, one of the best things that you can ever say to somebody if they come and ask you something is, I don't know, but I'm going to find out, <laughs> right? It's very much a teacher thing because we're not meant to know everything. But interestingly for me, my my two careers have literally gone like this. They, they have, they've been very interwoven. And um, <laughs> I always like to say I was a jack of all trades, a jill of all trades and a master of none, but it turns out that I'm actually a master of, a variety of different trades and I think it's a way more fun way to design your life um, but going back to I think almost every personal trainer truthfully should be not aspiring to become a journalist but 
aspiring to think like a journalist. Question things. Question the articles that you read. One thing we have seen within journalism in the last you know, decade is the rise of blogging. And there are excellent blogs out there. And there are blogs that are actually full of really bad information. And uh, a really interesting point about that, it would be the size of a study. You will see something go viral, right? You will see some, because of social media, you will see some trend, some latest um, microbiome thing that goes viral. And then they're referring to a study that had maybe 26 participants in it, right? And that's, that's just not good journalism and it's also not good fitness. We see this sort of thing, if, if it's a single study, it hasn't been replicated. We see that all the time. Or even the media, because you know, and this is a tricky one too, because as a journalist, you probably see a lot of the the disingenuous crap that mainstream media will do when it comes to health and fitness. For example, it's media does this all the time. We've seen a fifty percent rise in the in, in the risk of blah blah blah, such and such a thing, but the risk goes from two percent to three percent, which is technically a fifty percent rise. <laughs> But the actual magnitude of that change is is fairly minuscule. So, you know, here's a challenging question for the, the end user who is getting open, perhaps too good to be true, overblown stuff from mainstream media in all forms. And you get overblown stuff from social media influencers. And you get social media influencers who are saying that so, that the mainstream media is lying and we know that there's definitely a challenge right now within all forms of media that the politis politicization of things, the mistrust for the mainstream media, how do you help the person listening who is the consumer figure this out, what to trust and what to question? I think you have to look for sources, right? I really think that you have to look and the best way to do that is uh, go to conferences, attend conferences, Follow really, you know, someone like you, Andrew. Follow, follow people who are saying sensible things. Follow the uh, Peter Atias. Follow the Hubermans of this world. Follow the ones that have have credibility, right? That have, you know, that are are working in, in reputable universities and are pu putting out really interesting papers. You don't have to read them all, right? Like, there's ways to do Cole's notes of life, and I think that's where we're all living in but going to your question about the mainstream media versus what you might hear somewhere it's really about deciphering how many different it's like it's like listening to the village idiot right sometimes the village idiot knows what they're talking about right they they really do so it's it's actually taking that source taking that piece of information and then if this is going to be something you are speaking about, if you are someone who's listening to this podcast and you have 20,000 followers and you are going to be making a reel about it, make sure that you have fact-checked yourself before you put that out into the world. Please do that for the sake of everyone who is listening. <laughs> because this, this will be a perfect, a very, very good example. There's a great ICU doctor I follow that's... Um, out of Ottawa and it's quadcast. You should have him on your show if you haven't had him already. And he and I have been dancing the same sort of dance about physical activity and um, and what we're seeing and what we were seeing in ICUs, right? And so it was very, very well known. Um, British Medical Journal did a strong 48,000 person study uh, 
during COVID that people who were physically active were, had, were suffering less severe COVID-19 outcomes, right? Everyone knew it. Could I get that story into mainstream media? It was like, I was pitching it. I was, I ended up sounding as, as, as a communications director, I send out press releases. I reach out to media all the time. Hmm. And I ended up sounding like I was like, like literally banging my hands on the table. And there's only so much, there's only so much bandwidth. There's only so much space. There's a lot of competition within the media, but I think that we need to be saying the right things. We need to be saying them with credibility and we need to be saying them and they need to have sources behind them, right? Sources, studies, experts, great experts out there. There's a ton. Canada's full of amazing experts. I, I like this. So this is sort of, it, it's almost controversial, the fact that you brought that example up because in the early stages of the pandemic, that was a controversial statement. And it was uh, it was basically attributed, anybody in the fitness industry, we knew it was true. There was early evidence, we knew this was true. But I wouldn't even dare go out on my own media and talk about this stuff because you are then pigeonholed into, you're straight up a right-wing nut job if you got onto the narrative, which is astonishing when we think about it because it's so fundamentally, we now accept it, now you can say it. So this is... Because I try to be. And very... actually, let's let's add to that, Andrew, is that we can talk about physical inactivity, and then we can talk about the correlating factors of type two diabetes and mm -hmm. obesity, right? So these are so for me, you know, I am I am all about fit at any size. I don't believe I believe that we what we have seen hugely in the research is that people who are even people who are overweight or obese will be healthier. They will have healthier markers if they're physically active. Right. It's not about a number on a scale. It's about moving. But if you said that there were direct correlations between type two diabetes, obesity, smoking, chronic health conditions and inactivity, you were considered someone who was fat shaming. You were considered someone we were considered these like crazy fitness people that were, you know, telling you to go to the gym and go for a run. And then don't get, don't even get me started about about the lockdowns and the <laughs> fact that gyms were targeted, while you know Costco and all of these other establishments were kept open, right? Places of physical and mental health were shut down because of the spread of COVID. So there was a lot of stuff. I, I look back on those few years, and I think there was a lot of stuff that one we did not know. And when you were asking me, and I know we we're going to get to this about the research, I think that the more exciting stuff is going to come from the research that we're the universities and the the scientists are going to be doing right now, like right now about where we've just been and what's happening. But when you said about mainstream media, there was an article that came out about two weeks ago in a very mainstream Canadian publication that said that they couldn't find ties with COVID-19 and mental health outcomes. It's like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Social isolation, lockdowns. Did you look at teens? Did you look at seniors? What, what, what were you looking at when you actually wrote that article? And I think you know, I, I, my, my take on figuring out resources is I, I tend to look at everything through a skeptical lens unless someone has established themselves as a credible authority in an area of their expertise. So I like to look at people like maybe it's Greg Knuckles 
or Dr. Mike Isertel or some of the Renaissance periodization team, Dr. Lane Norton, especially when he's on nutrition stuff. There are even smart people in our industry who, when they wander outside of their area of expertise, they get in trouble. You mentioned Huberman earlier. Huberman is very brilliant when he's talking within the scope of his area of expertise. Huberman has repeatedly said things that were found to be completely fabricated or false or based on some very very dubious sort of animal model rodent study that has never been replicated people and he speaks of his facts so i actually try to caution people to stick to huberman stuff when he's more on point about his area of expertise peter atia i think is wonderful and his book outlive is excellent really yeah. really resource and it's that fabulous. goes into incredible detail about the relationship between and the way to combat it, combat it, but the relationship between, um, well, it's much, much more complicated than obesity and he, he has nuance with it, but the relationship between this and your lifestyle and long-term outcomes, like mm -hmm. certain types of cancers, uh, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, and, uh, and type two diabetes. So let's go back to this thing then, because I know Bailey's got more questions and I want to get to them, but how do you pick an expert? How do you find someone you trust? That's a really good question. Um, you know what? I I look at I, I actually look at who the the men that you just mentioned and the women that you just mentioned, who they're referencing. So sometimes it goes back to a very journalistic standpoint of looking in the index of books, right? And finding out oh, books. What are those, right? And and finding out who um, they, what studies they were looking at and what people they're looking at. You know, Andrew, before we did this podcast, you and I were talking about um, one of, you know, McMaster University, right? Like right here in Ontario has one of the best kinesiology departments pretty much in North America, right? And I've interviewed uh, one of the women there who wrote a fantastic book. Her name's Dr. Jennifer Heise. So a lot of the time, um, she wrote this book called Move Your Body, Heal Your Mind. And it is, in my view, it, it's required reading for almost every person, right? Because it, it takes a very uh, important stance on, without being judgmental on, you know, the power exercise has for anxiety, depression, and stress. But a lot of the time, I'll have a few of those people in my back pocket. <laughs> and if I, if... You know, I, I will I will look in terms of on, either on their social media or in terms of their their articles, and see um, who they're reading. Really, like like who are you reading right now? And and going back to the reputable sources again, I think this goes back to my point about the village idiot. It's not to say that someone with you know a hundred thousand followers who has a lot to say. Um, is to be discredited because they're on Instagram and that's how they built it up. Very often they've built it up because they're saying really reputable things. So what they're sharing as well, I look at that. And I also just like from gut instinct, you know, at, at the end of the day, there's a lot of, there are, are very intelligent people who are doing very important research. And then there's the rest of us <laughs> who just need to, who just need to help the 90% of the population who have no idea what to do when they get in a gym 
They really don't know how to eat. They're confused. And we know as, as professionals, it's so much simpler than they realize, right? It's so much simpler. It's accountability. It's consistency. It's eating a healthy diet that's highly anti-inflammatory. It's moving your body for 150 minutes to 300 minutes a week. It's following guidelines. It's strength training. It's cardio. It's mobility. It's not sexy. It's not massive, you know, ridiculous, crazy, cool things you see on the internet. So much of the stuff that we should be telling our clients is the basic stuff. So to that point, and I know that's a bit of a tangent, I respect the people who say the really basic things, but back it all up with a lot of science and yeah. data. I love data. <laughs> who doesn't love data? It can seem uh, overwhelming, but yeah, definitely to help the end user. Um, so you mentioned, you know, the basics and stuff and just to build a little bit more on that. Um, why do you think that having a plan is important for people trying to work on their health and fitness? Fail to, fail to plan, plan to fail, right? Like, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's such a Sundayism, right? It really is. It's, it's that, I mean, I worked, I worked for a very, uh, very corporate, very big gym. I'll just use this as an example in downtown Toronto. So I taught uh, lunchtime classes in the Bay Street location where it was lawyers, bankers, and they, what I saw, and it was, you know, the kind of like the the success rates of super successful people is that these these people were working 80 hours a week, but they blocked off 11.45 to 1.15 every day to go to the gym because they knew they needed it for their physical, they knew they needed it for their mental health. You've got to figure out, and this is the big tip I give everyone, you've got to figure out if you're an AM, a midday, or a PM exerciser. Because my argument would be that you are one of those three. Uh, those of us who really love exercising, we'll do it, you know, morning, midday, evening, right? We will. Like, we just will. Those of us who've actually, you know, been converted into this whole world that we live in. But for someone starting out, that is the first thing I would say. Figure it out. And that is trial and error, right? You might be churning through your morning workouts and then something will hit after, you know, four to six weeks and you love them. You can't imagine your morning without them. Or you might be someone who needs to de-stress at the end of the day, needs to get on a spin bike, like one of my clients at six o'clock at night, and that's what they look forward to at night. But you've got to figure that out. And you can't just sit there, but I tell all of my clients, because I have a health coaching community and a virtual fitness community, have a plan B, plan A, plan B, plan C. Plan A is your workout. Plan A is your like, I'm going to the gym, I'm doing, you know, chest and back, and maybe I'm gonna get a little bit of glute action in today because I feel like working on my booty. Plan B is, I'm going to have a very crazy day, but I'm going to go out at lunch and I'm going to walk that that path by my office and I'm going to walk up the hill four times to get my head in. And plan C is I'm going to do a five-minute exercise snack, right? Five to ten-minute exercise snack. 
Because if you have all three of those plans and you get to the end of the day, I will guarantee you this. At 7.30 at night, you're still going to do that exercise snack. This is brilliant. And you know what's weird? I've never heard anybody talk about that in the context of pl multiple plans. It, it's crazy because it's it's actually ingenious. And I actually think in that context, how many people and people listening ask yourself, how many people go in with great intentions and they have a plan A? I think a good example is on a bigger scale is the New Year's resolution. It's a plan A, right? Has no plan B. And what often happens is they go in with good intentions, but plan A is so difficult and extreme and unsustainable that it builds in the permission to then go to plan Z or Z, depending on where, which side of the border you're on, which is default to back to the way things were, but it helps alleviate the emotional discomfort, the guilt, the shame of not doing the thing that we know we're supposed to do for our long-term health. And we can say, well, I tried, I gave it a shot, but I just wasn't for me. It was, and that alleviates some of that emotional discomfort when in fact, I like plan B and plan C. Another point, the AMPM one, that's great too, because this whole like 5 a.m. club thing, it's total rubbish. It's this artificial morality that we assign to getting up early and somehow we're more productive. This has been completely debunked. Now, there are people who do well early in the morning. I am not one of those people, okay? Doesn't work for me. But if it works for you, super. But if people are actually sacrificing sleep time to the extra cardio or get up and do the workouts, it's actually counterproductive. And so there's this, again, this societal morality that you're somehow a better person. You're going to be more successful if you just do the early morning thing. That's complete garbage. So I, I personally do some of my best work later in the evenings. I traditionally have worked out later in my evenings. And I actually find that the world is kind of peaceful and quiet between 10 p.m. and even as late as 2 a.m., depending on what my start time is the next day. So I love that message. Yeah, and honestly, like... I actually think that the going to your New Year's resolution thing, I have written about New Year's resolution for some of the biggest magazines in the world. I've written, I've written coaching programs. I've written habit change articles. And, you know, it, th this whole like, oh, 93% of res resolutions fail. That's also been debunked. That's not factual at all. Because a lot of people do actually make resolutions in January. What we've seen, and I've my coaching group right now, I get them to give up alcohol for a month. And some of the really cool research came out of um, the University of Sus Sussex, which studied dry January. And they found that actually a significant percentage of people who partake in dry January are drinking less by August. So it's it's not to say that when you go through these periods of change, if you default back, Right. And I was just explaining this to my to my coaching group. Defaulting back is not failure, because anytime you try to make changes, I will tell you this. If you go through a period of change and then you go back to your old ways, this is such old thinking. You've had the experience of changing. You've had the experience of going to the gym. You've had the experience of what that feels like. And you don't just have muscle memory. You have wellness memory. You really do. And so those are the people that we see who keep trying. And those are the people that I freaking love. I love those people, right? We're in the best industry because honestly, we, we're trying to get people healthier. What greater job is that, right? 
And we're trying to inspire people that they can do things that they didn't think was possible. That's just also. But the best thing is that we're actually never going to be without clients. Because not only do we have 50% of our population who don't even use our services, who aren't even coming to our gyms and working out with us, the other 50% are, and they want to get stronger. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, I think everyone should work in fitness, truthfully. I think everyone, everyone should get into this industry. And it's why when coaches fight amongst each other over fairly trivial shit, I think it's like a oh. type. And to me, that's it's too much ego. There's a, too much ego in our industry. Does ego, their status play. I think it's a bit of a red flag. There are people I respect, I think are doing good things that will fight against misinformation. Sure, legit, right? But I would pay close attention to the people who do make shame-based attacks and narratives against other fitness professionals. I, I would just approach that with caution unless someone really has an extraordinarily demonstrated track record of integrity, credibility, and evidence-based, quality evidence-based information. Yeah, definitely. So um, going back to the basics then, <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that accountability is really, really important. Can you explain that and then sort of explain also why it's really important in health and fitness? Well, I mean, there's there have been, it's something that we just know by rote, right? And, uh, and when I was looking into the research behind it, if I were, if I were to go back and do like a PhD, which I have thought about, um, I would want to do it in something in terms of accountability because I don't think there's been a ton of academic research that has been done on how accountability uh, correlates directly with adherence to an exercise program. We have seen it with weight loss. We've seen it with obesity. We've seen it with with um, diet circles and diet groups, there have been studies on that, right? That if you're, if you are part of a pack, you're more likely to to uh, stick to your goals. And one really interesting study was done um, with a group of medical students in the United States who uh, took part in group fitness classes, and they were measured in terms of their stress levels and in terms of their enjoyment of fear of fitness and adherence to fitness. And it was, you know, it's something that it's, I think it came out in 2017, I'll have to find the study, but it's something that has been cited over and over again about group exercise. Because I come, I came to my, to the field of, of, of fitness and wellness and journalism as a group fitness instructor. I was a step aerobics instructor. I was a low impact instructor. I moved into the metabolic conditioning realm and into Tabata training, into strength training, and to group strength training. and there is energy in a room there is energy in a fitness room for sure and you form and where accountability come, comes in you form family and you're and i love this the executive director of, of fitness industry council of canada we have this wonderful new executive director and the president is this incredible woman and they both say the same thing right we're all saying the exact same thing your trainer your coach that person who greets you, that becomes like a family to you. It becomes a friend to you, right? It's it's almost like like therapy and support. And you don't want to let that person down. You know, the president of our council, she started an, a medical fitness um, franchise 
11 years ago and she started it because she and her best friend were on mat leave and they would go for runs together and they wouldn't want to let each other down. And then they realized, well, we could start a business where people didn't let each other down. And now they deal with people with obesity, chronic health conditions who come into their gyms and, and change their lives that way. So saying that accountability, I actually think that accountability and consistency are the absolute secret sauces of, of fitness. They're, they are the things that will, that will lead you from going from what Andrew was just saying from January 1st to December 31st is if you've got a good trainer, a good coach, a good group, a good friend who's going to come with you for walks or for runs. You know, the one thing that we've been saying in the last few years about accountability is, is you know, go for a walk. Everyone should go for a walk. And I, I think that's a great starting point. But I think we have to stop saying that in our industry. We have to stop telling people to just go for walks. Because walking is fantastic if you're completely sedentary, but there's going to be a point, and I know I'm veering off from accountability, where general adaptation principle kicks in and your mental health isn't soaring the same way it used to, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, again, where if anyone's listening who's like, I don't know where to begin, well, I can guarantee you your city has probably 50 amazing trainers. And if you're in a small town in Canada, it's probably got five great trainers that know how your body should move. And you need to go and meet one of those. And the mm -hmm. internet offers access to more than what's just local as well. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And that's just it is that like when I launched my virtual business, main, many of my members were in Toronto. But now, I, I, Andrew, and you're like, oh, I'm not a morning person. So I wake up every morning at six and I meditate. And I go through my morning routine and every morning at 7 a.m. for three years, I turned on this camera and I teach a group fitness class to people in Montreal. And so they're hours away from me and they show up and they're, they can do the classes recorded later on because I record everything. But they always say to me, but when you're live, it's different. Mm -hmm. My mom started doing some virtual classes with her two sisters during the COVID okay. stuff. And I, and I mean, mom's mom's God, a highest certification of swimming and lifeguarding you can get when she was younger. And you know, my, my parents have find ways to be active. They, they go out for walks, whatever. They're, they're not the types to end up in the gym. They love what they see me do with my career. But they, mom found something that held her accountable that she had access to. And she got to spend time with, because one of her sisters is local to her in St. John's, Newfoundland. The other is in Nova Scotia. And the three of them are very close, but obviously there are times where, they, you know, and they're all in their late sixties, early seventies at this point. So they're, you know, they're following the restrictions and they're being cautious as we didn't know as much stuff. So therefore this way was a really good way for them to stay connected and meet up. And they were doing it multiple mornings every week. And, I don't know, they had some sort of class or instructor. I'm not even sure who it was, but I thought it was wonderful. And they seem to really enjoy it and get a lot out of it. So it embodies all of these positive qualities you're talking about. Well, I mean, this is, they're, they're looking into, and it's really interesting because, um, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by longevity, right? Like I, I'm, I'm on that 
training to be 100 years old and teaching fitness classes still when I'm like 105. But they're looking at, into seniors because, you know, we know that, that social isolation is, is, is really killing our older generation more than anything else. And they're really developing a lot. You see a lot of virtual fitness programs being developed for seniors. And I just think that is absolutely genius. And I actually think they, that we need more of that for teens too, because I think we have a, a huge amount of teens who are, who are not doing well since COVID began. And I think that, that in my view, honestly, I teach the exact same class, exact same effort, exact same energy as I did in the studio. Exactly the same. It's the same workout. It's the exact, and it's the same workout because I know how to cue. And it's the same workout because I know how to guide people to understand which muscles they need to feel when they're doing a row, right? It's because I'm, I am well-trained and I'm also, and goes back to the beginning of our interview, I am constantly educating myself, right? I go to conferences, I get CCs. I, I'm not, after this many years in the industry, if you're not growing and evolving, why are you in this industry? There's so much to learn, right? There's so much to learn. And there's so much to learn about, about the human project too. Like why have we not tapped the 50% of people who are inactive? They're not lazy. They wanna feel good, right? They don't wanna feel the way they feel in their body. So how do we get there? How do we reach them? How do we get Canada be, to be the healthiest country in the world, right? It's, and that's part of my life's work is figuring that out. Mm -hmm. But accountability is essential. And your experience as a journalist, and I think the biggest thing about that, I mean, like shit, you've written for the Globe and Mail and a lot of other stuff, right? I left that out of the introduction. It's, it's communication and it's media and media shows up in lots of different forms, right? The written form is one of those things, but you know, it's, I'm, I'm on my other podcast. I talk a lot about brand and media based stuff, not much here, but for everybody listening, I mean, you think about the accounts that you enjoy and you follow the most. Well, usually they're entertaining, informative, some combination of the two fun, likable, relatable, right? These are all important things. And in a sense, you can take the principles of good journalism and marry them to the these other principles that will lead to successful social media. Merge that with good evidence-based information. And if you're willing to learn those skills and to scale those platforms, that's how you can create a fairly substantial impact. That is ultimately how you found my media, right? That is what when I look at someone, you know, I, one of our guests we had on before, Susan Niebergall. Susan is incredible. Susan is in her early 60s. She can do weighted chin-ups. She's in incredible shape. And we've talked about this. There's not a lot of women her age as leaders, educators, and authority figures in the industry. So she feels kind of alone there. I mean, but I think she's doing wonderful things. And if you look across the, the group of guests we've had on, on this podcast, um, Jessica Gunn, you know, Jessica's in her early 40s. She'd only found, I think, fitness in her late, late 30s. And she's built a really strong brown, uh, brand and foundation on this stuff. There are tons of examples of these really awesome people. That's why I like sharing people like yourself and our other guests with everybody. And that's why 
you know, I've been very invested in, in Bailey's brand growth and more people finding out about Bailey and her media as well, uh, because Bailey's one of the strongest I, I know. I, and I love your content, Bailey. I really do. And I mean, like, I think that this is this is such a, a valid point, too, right, is that, you know, I, 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 uh, there's a TV show in, in Toronto that, that is, has been very good to me and they're, uh, called Breakfast Television and they're just, they're just, they're, they're awesome. They're just awesome humans. And when, when COVID hit, I was actually pitching the producer for, on behalf of other clients. And then she was like, you want to come on the show and do a, an exercise segment? And it started out because I, I'm a little bit bananas. <laughs> <laughs> if you actually do any of my fitness classes, I'm like, I'm pretty intense. I can be pretty intense. It's, it's kind of my brand. And so if you look at my earlier segments, I mean, I've got Sid and Dina on like, like doing planks and like, like just shit that like, I thought, sorry, I probably should have said that. I thought was pretty basic. I thought it was pretty toned down, right? Like it was a little bit metabolic, but blah, blah, blah. And then if you go to what I'm doing now, like I was on last Friday, I've even evolved. Because for me, my time doing those cool things, it's not that it's up. It's just that I feel as though I want to see more people inspired to just get active, to get healthy, to understand that it's all interrelated, right? That how we eat, how we move, how we sleep, how mindful we are, right? You know, the, uh, hopefully you're having people who are talking about mindfulness on your podcast too, Andrew, because for <laughs> me, honestly, like I, uh, I can't say in enough different ways. I am not, in a, like I became a yoga instructor about a, two months ago and every single one of my students <laughs> was like, you? <laughs> like, yes, but the mindful piece in terms of all of this, I actually think that is the, the tiny thread with all of our clients that we could really spin them together. Because when people meditate or practice mindfulness, you, you and I, we all know this, right? They develop neural pathways that help them, enable them to hit pause, enable them to make conscious decisions, enable them to act, not just react in life. Like it's, it's a very powerful piece of the exercise and the physical activity quotient. And I like how you pointed out mindfulness and meditation, because I think people come loaded with people who don't know meditation, come loaded with these preconceived notions and meditation seems like this complicated, you know, there is the one way to do things. A lot of people will struggle to take a first step into something that they're intimidated by, but mindfulness really is my version of mindfulness because me meditating is probably never going to work for my brain. I probably need it more than most, but it's, it's pausing. And I notice when I do certain things, I simply try to slow down and be aware of what I'm doing. And there's a certain things I've trained myself to do. One is while I'm brushing my teeth. Another is when I'm washing dishes and I will literally go into this space where instead of being annoyed by the fact I have to wash dishes, I just put myself right in the very moment. Everything sort of slows down. It becomes this nice little de-stressing de exercise for me. And, and I know what you're alluding to is if we apply that mindfulness to our eating choices. So here's a useful takeaway. When you feel you are craving, especially later in the day, because we're more prone to crave things, long, tired day, 
proverbially willpower is is depleted, whatever your take on the science of that is. But we're more likely to lean towards the high calorie, junkier type food later in the day. And if you can just pause and say, all right, I'll give myself permission to have this, but I have to wait 15 minutes. Or you start mm-hmm. to question the sensation of wanting this. Do I really need this? And sometimes you can say, no, this isn't aligned with my goals. Or sometimes you just simply make yourself wait. Or sometimes, and people, funny enough, people get, I've seen people get twisted about this idea, but I think fundamentally it's very true at its essence is, is understanding the difference between physiological hunger and psychological hunger, bored hunger. And so the example is if you won't eat an apple or like the apple that's on the counter, but you're going for the cookies or the, the, the you know, the, the high carb, the cheese or what the shredded cheese, you're in the fridge at two in the morning eating shredded cheese, then are you actually, hey, listen, I've done it. So don't judge. Um, <laughs> my my line, honestly, Andrew, is no good eating happens after eight o'clock at night. And we, and- Unless you're out for a dinner party, no good eat. And that's not about intermittent fasting. We could get into a whole conversation about that. But really, like not, people are not going for a spinach and kale salad at 10.30 oh, at night. So if you're no. mindful about the choice. And then sometimes we can kind of come to reality and realize, wait a second, I actually am not physically hungry, right? And if we get more in touch with that over time, it can help. And sometimes it's really fucking okay to enjoy the food you want to enjoy. Absolutely. I, I like to oh be my a God. Bit more intentional with it and to make sure it's worth it because there's a big difference between the high calorie convenient crap that is never satisfying, never yeah. is, you feel like you wasted money and you feel like you wasted the bloody calories. And then there's the things that you love. And I want people to feel less guilt about enjoying the things they love and to try to move off of the convenient, mediocre crap that leaves you going, oh, that was a waste. You feel shitty. Then you still want the fulfilling thing that you enjoy. And then you go eat that. Then you feel really guilty because, well, I now I've blown my calories. Where yeah. can people find your media we we're running uh, out of time so we want to tell i know you. i was good i'm just before before i give you my hashtags i was gonna say my my um I, my health coaching group is called the healthy six so i'm not in it right now i'm doing another one in october though um but the rule that i have is called the healthy six rule so it's a, it, and this is a great one for anyone it's a six minute rule so in the first six minutes set a timer on your phone if you want to have that food and walk out of the room When that timer goes, set another timer for six minutes and go for a six minute walk. Mm -hmm. And then if you still want the food, eat the fucking food. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about food, I want everyone who's listening to think about what they love and what they're, why? Because I can guarantee you there is some emotional reason that you love the three things that you, you absolutely love, right? The things, three things that are, are your comfort or your Achilles heel, whatever you want to call them, right? I can guarantee you there's something emotional attached to those. And that goes back to your whole like, and if we deny it, we're denying probably a part of ourself that is really fundamentally a place of love. For me, it's chocolate chip cookies, warm chocolate chip cookies straight from the oven and home-baked chocolate chip cookies. And that ties back to when I was four years old. So, so you can go to my website. It's AaronFalon.com. You can join my fitness classes. You can join my community. It is Aaron Phelan Fit. 
which is all one word, E-R-I-M-P-H-E-L-A-N, fit at Instagram, obviously on Instagram. And uh, the Fitness Industry Council of Canada is, uh, we're also on Instagram and we have National Health and Fitness Day coming out on June 3rd. It's gonna be a very exciting day. We're gonna, we're trying to inspire every, every Canadian, every fitness professional, every trainer to open their gyms, to get our members, to bring members, to just get people moving, creating a movement movement. This has been great. And this is something I think challenge people to think more about where they're getting their information, but there's, especially the second half of this episode, a lot of really useful stuff. Any parting thoughts, Bailey? Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Uh, everybody listening, please go check out what Aaron is doing. Thank you for, again, being part of our world and community and listening. Um, if you happen to be someone who's new, who is finding our podcast through Aaron's Media, take a wander through our other guests. We've had a lot of, all our guests to this point have been women in the industry that I believe are doing great things. There may be one or two men who I think might work for this. If I ever get Josh Hillis on here, Josh is a sweet, wonderful human that women will absolutely love. But primarily the guests are female. Uh, but anyway, please check some more of what we're doing out. Maybe you'll stick around and enjoy future episodes. Thank you so much for supporting us. And Aaron, thank you for coming on. We appreciate you.